Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Jewish People Policy Institute's Inside Analysis of Israel at War. Today, I'm honored to be joined by our two senior fellows, Gil Troy and retired Colonel Eldar Zilber, both who will be with us to discuss the ongoing war with Hamas, some of their feelings, thoughts, and personal experiences as we've been through this. Eldar, in particular, has been serving quite a few days in the reserves, so we'll hear from him what that experience is like being a soldier, but also being a father and a husband and having a day job that you're pulled away from to uh, participate in Israel's war against Hamas. Before that, I had a conversation earlier today with Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, who is the executive director of an organization called Amatai, but came out with a fantastic book recently called The Ethics of Our Fighters. And it is about morality of warfare and the conduct of Jews and how they have viewed war throughout the millennia and centuries. And looking back at Jewish literature and Jewish thought and Jewish halakha and what 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 there is said there about how Israel is meant or how Jews are meant to fight. And we the book obviously just came out came out just a few days ago, so it obviously does not pertain and does not talk about the ongoing conflict, but there's a lot of lessons from that book, from the, the, the book that can be applied, as we'll hear from Rabbi Bro, Dr. Brody, that can be applied to the current ongoing conflict with Hamas. So before we go to Gil and Eldar, here is Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody talking about his new book, The Ethics of Our Fighters. Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, it's great to have you with us on the JPPI webinar and podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, so I was looking at your new book, and congratulations to all of our viewers and listeners. You'll want to check out Ethics of Our Fighters, a Jewish view on war and morality that just came out this week, recently published off the presses uh, by Koran Publishing. So congratulations on the book. And I know that you... It wasn't written uh, with the October 7th attacks and the war that has ensued necessarily in mind, and I want to talk about that. But first, why don't you just give us a brief overview of what what is the book about? Why did you feel compelled to write this book? And then I want to dive in with you to talk a bit about the application of what you researched and, and learned and wrote to everything that's happening right now. So why this book? Thanks so much, Yaakov. You know, I've always been interested in the intersection between Jewish thought and ethics and how those play out. And when it comes to the history of Zionism, it's always been a really interesting question when Jews who didn't have the struggles and the dilemmas of sovereignty for hundreds, thousands of years, really, all of a sudden now have to deal with these issues, ethical issues of power and warfare. How are we going to address those issues? And what does Judaism have to say about it? So I sort of set out to systematically write a book that would talk about the history of these dilemmas and how Jews confronted it, with in mind, in particular, where Judaism might come and play and how that might inform our decisions. You know, issues of military ethics and power. There's a lot of discussion about this in Christian literature. They had power, so they had these issues to deal with. Jews didn't have this, and so really starting with World War One. We started to confront these issues again, and certainly as Zionism progressed. And I wanted to tell that story of how we confronted these issues and the lessons we can learn from it. 
And what I found was really fascinating is that many early Zionists, religious or not religious, sometimes anti-religious, were still very interested in what Judaism or the sources of Judaism or the history of Judaism might teach us about these dilemmas. And that's what I try to set out and write the book about. So if I understand and and just skimming, there's two basic rough time periods to an extent, or two states of mind almost for the Jew. One is the powerless Jew, the Jew who's living in exile, who's subservient to a foreign, another nation's laws and army to give it some sort of protection or not, or to kill it, as happened so many times throughout history. But then there's the history of the Jews after 1948 and the establishment of the state of Israel. Now Jews have the power, the ability to defend to defend themselves by themselves. So I'm, I'm guessing that the ethics also change to some extent, like how what Jewish literature, law or halakha, how it would have looked at. I know one of the examples is like the, the bombings of Dresden, let's say. I'm curious, like that might be different than the way we're looking today at the bombings of Gaza, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's interesting. You know, when I spoke to one of your colleagues, actually, at the JPTI, Shuki Friedman, and I told him I was writing this book. He goes to me, that's going to be a very short book. What does Judaism have to say about this issue? And Shuki's got great respect, of course, for the Jewish tradition. Um, but we do see some discussion about these dilemmas in medieval and, and earlier literature. Of course, in the Bible, there's you know, certain, a lot of warfare and descriptions of it. But then the question becomes is, well, do you really want to look to those sources? Right? How ethical were those stories in the Bible? And how much could it teach us in medieval period when they didn't have much to say about you know, these issues because it wasn't so relevant? So in some ways, you know, we're starting anew in the 20th century. But there, there are passages in earlier rabbinic literature that are insightful and that certainly were part of what guided um, Jews in the 20th century and Zionists. But part of also what guided people was understanding Jewish history and that what had happened to us because of powerlessness. And on the one hand, we didn't want to act like those who had acted ruthlessly against us. It's a very important trait that many Jews and early Zionists stressed is don't do what others did to us. And that's one of those lessons of Jewish history. The other great lesson of Jewish history, though, is if you don't know how to fight and protect yourself and do what it takes to protect yourself, you're going to die. And those are two, you know, tensions or two dilemmas or values, excuse me, that are in a bit of a tension with each other. And I think that's part of the story that I try to tell is how these great thinkers and leaders balanced those two values. So, you know, as you're speaking, I'm thinking uh, Kaya, my wife, uh, likes to tell the story after uh, the October 7th attacks that for for many years, I, I would say to her on Shabbat Zachor, right, the Shabbat that uh, we Jews read the story of, uh, of Amalek and remind ourselves to never forget what Amalek did to us. And there's that commandment in the Torah uh, uh, of how to fight and to destroy basically all of Amalek. Uh, I, I would say, and it's always read around Purim, right? The Shabbat before Purim or around that time. I would always say, you know, I can't believe that we have this. This is such a terrible, and I can never, I can, I could personally just never come to terms with this, this commandment of Amalek. And I know so much has been written about it, so much. After October 7th, I said to her one day, I now feel like I, I, be, I begin to understand it in a, in a more real way, personally, right? 
and, and I'm sure that's also a tension that exists to a large extent in, in what you were grappling with in this book. Oh, absolutely. And if you saw the cover of Commentary Magazine after October 7th, they quote the biblical verses, which says, remember what Amalek has done to you. And there's something very powerful about that passage in the Bible, which teaches us the importance of uprooting evil, of recognizing evil and uprooting evil. And that's an you know, important principle of ethics that should drive us. So there's, there's an ethical imperative to get rid of evil from the world, particularly, of course, when it's threatening you in such a you know severe manner. At the same time, I don't think any of us want to go back to indiscriminately killing you know, men, women, and children, whether a threat to us or not, and have any interest in genocide, as the biblical commandment seems to ordain. And, and that's, you know, something that we have to deal with when we think about, well, what does our tradition teach us? And in fact, one of the things that I try to develop in chapter two of the book in particular is precisely relating to that type of legacy, which says that we know we have to get rid of evil, but that doesn't mean we can do everything to do to accomplish that goal. And so that is part of the challenge we have. And by the way, it was a similar challenge that people had in the late 30s. Zionists were debating, right, what were we going to do in order to get this state, to get the British to give us sovereignty, when we saw the clouds of war hanging over Europe? Right? Would you randomly kill an Arab, right? terror against terror, right? commit our own terror attacks, which is more or less what the Edsel was doing at the time? Or would you say that's an abominable act? You can't do that. So these were real dilemmas that we had to deal with. And I think that history and the story of those dilemmas is really important for us to understand. It's very interesting. And, and, and what you said also makes me think that, you know, you have an obligation to uproot evil just compounds the failures of October 7th or what led up to October 7th is that we, you know, we can all talk about the intelligence failure and how we knew that Hamas was there, but it was I always think to the fact that, you know, basically Hamas was telling us, we're going to kill you. We're going to rape your women and kidnap your children. And we kept on saying, no, 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 no you're just kidding. Or or you just want to vent. But we didn't, we, we were playing a diplomatic political game. We weren't seizing the ethical imperative as you're referring to it. Absolutely. And, and there's a real interesting ethical dilemma, which is when do you preemptively attack? When do you say there's too much of a threat here? I cannot uh, bear to deal with this threat, right? To let them come to us first. I've got to go and attack and take it to them, which is something which the world has a hard time accepting, particularly, by the way, after Iraq and Afghanistan, right, which where you could argue were preventative wars, depending on your standard, and didn't necessarily work out the way we wanted them to work out. And, and that's a real ethical dilemma, which is you have this obligation to protect your own people. And, and we should, and that was the, you know, the great ethical failure of October 7th. It wasn't just a strategic failure. It's an ethical failure, which says we have this obligation to protect our people. And we failed at that. And one of the things we're going to have to think about after the war, of course, right? But we're going to have to think about this after the war is well, should we have done something preemptively or should we have done something, even though we weren't sure maybe that they were going to do this? And the truth is, it's not something we may have the luxury of thinking about after the war, because as you know well, Yaakov, we do have Iran to deal with. We have Hezbollah to deal with. We've got like six fronts right now. And the question becomes is, well, do we have a strategic or an ethical obligation to sort of take the fight to them at this stage? 
It's very interesting. So I, I want to move with you, uh, Shlomo, to the uh, application of everything that you, you write about in this book and what you're seeing right now happen over the last 80 days or so, fighting in Gaza. It, it, there's a lot of questions, right? People look, you know, I, I hate the numbers game, but the numbers game is part of this. You know, people say, okay, you got 21,000 Palestinians killed. Uh, Israel says, well, we're not even sure about those numbers, but we believe six to 7,000 of them are Hamas or Islamic Jihad fighters. So we're looking at a one to two ratio, one combatant to civilians. And if you, I think if you do look overall throughout the recent modern warfare history, that's not so bad in terms of that ratio. It's actually quite good. But that's not a conversation that you can really have with people who, who aren't willing to think and be open-minded and, and, and actually use their brain muscles. But I'm curious, when you look at the war, is Israel fighting ethically? Is Israel doing everything it can? Is Israel upholding the standards that uh, were laid out in, in centuries of Jewish thought and literature? Based on what we know, the access that we have, right, in terms of what's being reported, I think Israel is doing an incredible job. And the numbers that you mentioned beforehand are really, they're very low in terms of the number of non-combatants that have been killed. Now, of course, it's really hard to know exactly who's a combatant, who's a non-combatant when you're dealing with a terrorist group and asymmetric warfare. But the biggest issue we're dealing with is we're fighting an army that's underground or that's staying underground. I mean, how many precedents do you have for this in the history of warfare? And we're fighting a situation where, for various reasons, the bordering countries, in this case country, Egypt, won't allow refugees to come through their borders. So, you know, at some point, one of these questions you really have to be thinking about is who bears responsibility for these non-combatant deaths, which we should stay from the get-go, are tragic. It is absolutely tragic because we believe that all human beings are created in the image of God and have a certain amount of inherent dignity. We don't want to see non-combatants and certainly young children and whatnot. We don't want to see them killed. It's a terrible phenomenon. But responsibility for that has to lie with those who aren't doing anything to protect them. And in this case, that's really with Hamas. And it's a super hard argument to make against TikTok and Instagram and pictures on Al Jazeera and CNN. And we have to build up the moral fortitude to understand that this remains ethical. And that's part of why I wrote this book is to explain to people, you cannot judge the ethics of the scene based on gruesome pictures or based on a snip uh, you know an instagram what are they called real or, or whatever those things are um the 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 other question i have you know israel is we like to say about ourselves that we are the most moral army in the world right that's like a a known kind of slogan and a lot of people say that's not necessarily the case Look at the way the military operates. They, they, they'll throw out, you know, an image here or a video. Now, of course, there are rotten weeds in every every society. But I'm curious in the comparative analysis that you did writing this book and in, in, in what you researched and discovered in the historical analysis as well. Does that does that slogan, does that phrase really hold up? Are we the most moral army? And is it because of and is sorry, let me just add one more point to it. Is it because of our Jewish tradition? So I think it's absolutely true that Israel has been fighting moral wars. And we have to understand what I mean by that. It's fighting that it's just in going to war, and it's fighting in a just manner. 
And part of the real issue is that people dis- don't understand the dis- that distinction between the ethics of deciding to go to war, is this justified to go to war in the first place, and how you fight war once war has begun. And the reason why that gets so confusing for people is there are many people, including you know Israelis, who are sympathetic to the larger Palestinian claim or Palestinian nationalism. Right? And so when they see all these people being killed in Gaza, and they feel like, well, shouldn't they have a state? Maybe they should have a state. Why don't they have a state? And so they combine those two factors. But you really have to separate those out because this one question was, was Israel justified to fight on October 8th? I think everyone understands here the answer is yes. Well, if that's the case, then the next question is, once they're deciding to fight, are they fighting in a way which is trying to remove the threat, which is an ethical imperative to remove this threat against their people? And at the same time, trying to minimize non-combatant deaths in a very, very difficult battlefield situation. And I think here it's it's crucially important to understand that since 82, in the first Lebanon war, Israel's been dealing with this issue. And you asked me about the impact of Jewish tradition. So there's an amazing story, which I tell in the book. In 82, Israel, months into the war, lays siege on Beirut. It's a big moment. And the Ashkenazic chief rabbi of Israel, who has a military history, Rabbi Shlomo Gorin, gets up and announces publicly, Israel must create an evacuation corridor, Jewish law mandates allowing people to leave a siege. And the IDF does that. And 100,000 people flee Beirut. And so... You know, that's a big deal. Now, I don't know it's just because Rabbi Gordon said it, right? There are other reasons why, of course, we did it. But I think that's a great example of how the Jewish tradition is going to try to balance values. And ultimately, that's the biggest difficulty that people have today is you see these images and you just say, this is horrible. It must stop. It sounds like that's, by the way, what the Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau was saying. I saw these images. This cannot be right? something which is permissible. But the answer is that the complex moral life is always going to be balancing different types of moral imperatives. And we have a moral imperative right now to remove evil and protect our people. This isn't about revenge. That's very important. And unfortunately, our defense minister used a little bit of those terminology in the first week. Terrible mistake. And we shouldn't think about in terms of vengeance. And it's not even about justice per se. This is about self-defense and protecting the future ability of Jews to live in this land. And I like the added, it's an ethical uh, responsibility also, right? That you have as a country and as a military towards your people. Absolutely, because the way this gets presented is there's a humanitarian argument as opposed to interest. Well, it's not just an interest of Israel to have safe borders, right? This is an ethical imperative to protect our people. And by the way, ethical imperatives might sometimes you know, dictate to retreat from territory, right? To give up land for peace, whoever it might be. That's one of the issues I get into in the book as well is that the whole land for peace issue isn't just a matter of interest and power versus humanitarianism or something like that. And this is a much larger and broader question, which is a really a deep ethical uh, issue in terms of evaluating what's best for your defense and how you preserve life. Well, I couldn't think of a greater, a more important time to have this discussion and for the book Ethics of Our Fighters to come out. I want to thank you very much, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, for being with us. And uh, people, get this book if you want to understand 
what's going on in how Israel fights and the 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 foundation, the value foundation upon which the IDF operates. So thank you very much for being with us. So I uh, I thought that was a very interesting conversation. What I actually took away from it, and uh, now I do have to read the book, uh, is that um, I like this idea that a state, you know, when you think about like October 7th, you think about all the failures and we think about what we, what the responsibility is of a government towards its people, but this whole ethical responsibility of what it means to defend your country and to eliminate threats and to uproot evil. And that being like a, this kind of ancient Jewish uh, foundational principle of sorts uh, is, is, is something that's very interesting, but I want to go, I want to go to our, our two panelists here. And, uh, I think I know that both of you probably have a lot to say specifically on this topic. And I, I want to start with Eldar. So, uh, Eldar, I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts just to, to our listeners, maybe just a quick one word of who, who Eldar is. It's, it's good to have him for the first time on the podcast and on the webinar, Eldar is a former, uh, officer in the Israeli air force is now currently doing a lot of reserves uh, runs a lot of the data. There's all data information program, the Glazer Center, I think it's called at JPPI. So a lot of uh, a lot of work on that. Uh, has done some intelligence work in the Air Force and is now spending a lot of time in the in as I mentioned in the reserves. But Aldar, I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, specifically about kind of this whole ethical warfare uh, conversation. I must tell you that uh, I think that I live in two worlds. The first world is the world that uh, when I put on my uniform and go to the army. And then I living in a territory that I understand. And I must tell you that now after almost 90 days, that uh, there is no such a thing as ethical issue. Because in each target, in each place, in each thing that we are doing, we are looking about everything. We are trying to understand if there is something that can be uh, with the, not something, sorry, that a place with the human, with kids, with the unrelated uh, people and something like this. But on the other hand, I understand that the best way in my uh, position is, guys, it's a war, let's bomb everything. But no, this is not how we are working. And it's amazing. Sometimes... There is a, a critical target that we know that we must bomb right away. And if we want to bomb it right away, we will miss a very uh, important person that can uh, change the whole face of the of the war. But no, we are checking, we are working, we try to understand. There is a, a mask or a, 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 a school or a hospital near the area. There is a a short possible of damage that we can do. We are checking everything. And after we are doing all the check, we need to approve again and to make sure that there is another eye that checking us and then we, we can move. This is my world on the last 90 days to make sure that everything is okay. Now we are looking also on, you know, on the social network, Instagram, everything. And we saw all the things that the other side is saying. So uh, we are looking at uh, reports like there is like 100 uh, dead on the hospital. We know for sure that there is nothing like this, but we are taking this as a fact and we are going to check to see again if there was any mistake. 
we are looking from upstairs, downstairs, from everything to make sure that we did the right uh, thing. And I must tell you that uh, I think most of the time and most of the reports that I was uh, handling, there was a big lie from the other side. And then I'm going out, take off my universe and uh, coming to the real world. And and then there is, you know, something like 100 degrees, 180 degrees, the opposite. Everything looks like the the most uh, horrified thing in, in the world. You just said uh, that there is like uh, over the over than uh, 20,000 uh, people that was uh, killed. I don't think that there is one person except the, in the army or uh, from the reporters that know exactly. What are the numbers of the soldiers, of the Hamas soldiers, or the jihad soldiers that was killed? We know the numbers. We understand exactly the numbers. And we know that there is sometimes uh, other casualties because this is the situation. But uh, if you know, and, I'm and I think that everyone knows that uh, we are telling, we are asking, the, the spokesman of the IDF every day ask all the people to move to Rafiah, to other areas, in order to make sure that they won't be injured. If they decide to stay, it's, go, it's, it's causing us a lot of trouble, I must tell you. But we are taking it under consideration and, and the situation is a, a very unique, challenging, but I think that our IDF is, is amazing the way he is doing. So, so Eldar, I want, playing off of that, Gil, I want to go to you because you, you kind of look at this and, and I know that you grapple with this on the other side to a large extent, right? The people who are disseminating and 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 the people who are spreading these lies or the false information and trying to counter it in a different way. And you know, I'm sure I'm sure you, like I, have used many times over the years in lectures and articles and op-eds, have you know, the most moral army in the world and and spoken to what Eldar is explaining that he he's actually dealing with. Like he he gets his hands dirty with this stuff. I mean, it, it's an uphill battle to a large extent, no? So first of all, I just have to honor Eldar because you're really dealing with the most difficult dilemmas. And as uh, Rabbi Shlomo Brody said, you really have the fate of our kids, of our future in your hands. And uh, we, we so appreciate what you and uh, all your colleagues do. I, I'm, I'm torn, I have to say, as an American historian um, who studied World War II in depth, who watched the Iraq War, I often think that morality in war is like vegetarianism among cannibals. It's an oxymoron. And I notice how the American uh, people, I'm not just talking about the American military and the American leadership, but I'm talking about the American people basically choose not to look too closely, choose not to scrutinize. And it's fascinating to me and quite depressing to me how much scrutiny Israel is under, uh, how it is under the gun, how it is under the microscope, when, and I'm not talking about 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, I'm talking about during the Iraq war, during the Afghanistan war, I'm talking about 677,000 people dying in, um, in, in Syria, the American people and the universities were silent. So the American historian in me is very, very skeptical about and cynical about this whole conversation. The Zionist in me is so proud about this struggle because we have to live in the real world, but we always, always, always are dreamers. And we always, always, always are trying to hold our souls together and keep our, the dream alive. And that part of the dream is not just being a free people in our homeland, but living up to our highest ideals. And that's also why where Rabbi Brody's conversation is so important. And going back to those Jewish roots while also living 
in the real world. And we know how easy it was for us to be moral when we were lambs being led to the slaughter and being moral when you have evil enemies. I don't hear much of a conversation among Hamas or among the pro-Palestinian uh, demonstrators at Harvard and Yale and, and Rutgers and Princeton about the morality of October 7th. So asymmetrical warfare is not only the limitations that are imposed on us in real time, and Aldar I'm sure could tell us stories of, of important targets that sometimes were not taken out and ultimately hurt us years later or months later because of our morality, but the disproportion of all the moral wincing and cringing about what we do and the free pass that Hamas gets. And that's frankly a form of bigotry against Hamas and against the Arabs and against Palestinians. And I hold them to the same standards because as Rabbi Shlomo Brody said, it's about human beings. Every human being is precious. My people are precious and their people are precious. But one more thing I have to say as the father of IDF soldiers, I am so appreciative of our ethical code because one of the things I worry about, I don't, I don't only worry about people coming home fully uh, in, in bodies, I worry about their souls. And the fact that my kids all know that there are red lines that we won't cross, the fact that my kids know that they are doing the most unspeakable, dirty things that I've never had to do in my life, and yet have that sense of morality, gives this whole thing a clarity. And when they come home and start healing emotionally and psychically, and we all start healing emotionally and psychically, those red lines will be so important. So I'm not doing it to, to, to be popular. And I have a healthy appreciation, Yaakov, as you do, of the fact that no matter what we do, once we start defending ourselves, when we're bleeding, we're popular. Once we start defending ourselves, it's too much. It's not, it's, it, 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 it's not going to get as popular. But I think about internally how we have to protect our souls and our psyches. There was a chief of staff, Moshe Yalon, back in the early 2000s, who referred to this as the mirror test. Can he stand in front of a mirror and look himself in the mirror and be able to live with what he's able to do? And that's how he would, back if we all remember in the early 2000s, as the beginning of the Second Intifada, the when targeted killings became uh, one of the tactics that Israel was employing quite often, that was, uh, he was using the mirror test a lot. Eldar, I want to go back to you, and uh, I want to make it a little personal, if you don't mind, because I think that you have a very... Uh, important personal story that uh, I can only imagine has been with you and on your mind for these last 80 something days. Uh, please, if you don't mind sharing with us, what, what, and you know, you know what I'm referring to. So uh, I, I will take you all uh, back uh, 50 years ago. I was born on August uh, 1973. And uh, when I was uh, eight weeks uh, old, my father was killed on, uh, on Yom Kippur uh, War. I didn't manage to know him. I know him from uh, videos, pictures, stories. But uh, until uh, I was 18, uh, the Yom Kippur uh, ceremony, the Independence Day, I wasn't uh, at school. I was at the ceremony uh, saying uh, Kaddish and uh, praying uh, on uh, my father with all my uh, family. And when I was young, I remember that uh, I asked my mother why I can't be with all my friends on school. And she told me we have something else to do. And uh, when I was uh, 18 and I wanted to be in the army, there was the huge question of, uh, am I going to be uh, a Krovi or I'm going to do something else? My mother, my mother, uh, I, I commented. 
my mother told me that uh, I can do whatever I want to do, and I started to do some uh, tests, and then I found myself uh, in, in the intelligence sec- section of the Air Force, and it was uh, fine with me, and this is something that uh, uh, for me was, uh, was something great. Uh, and then the years passed, and we, we entered the October, uh, the October War. The October War on the 7th of October found me on vacation, on the other place, uh, at the other side of the world, uh, near uh, Africa. And it took me like a few hours to understand that there is here a huge situation. And then I started to to think how I'm going back to Israel. It was very difficult. And I managed to go back on Israel on the 9th of October and to start my service. The 9th of October, 2023, was the day that my father was killed. And this is like was a, a huge uh, circle for me to understand that there is only one thing for me to do, to fight on my country and to make sure that uh, we will do everything uh, to win and to make sure that we are going to live here. The last uh, 90 days are, are, are very difficult. Uh, you say it, uh, you told it uh, at the beginning. Uh, I'm on the army. I'm. There is like a, a, my new job or my old job is now a, came back to me. All my neighbors look at me and say, ah, you go back to the army. It's very obvious for them. But for me, it's not so obvious because after I got a, a retired, there is like a whole life that uh, everyone knows. But I didn't know and I started to live. A family, wife, work, you know, regular stuff, I think. and. Uh, one hour, one thing, everything was like wrapped away. We closed it and we started to do uh, things that uh, are very important. I wish I will be able to tell you, but it's a bit classified. But the, the issue that I think everyone needs to understand that as a reserve, you have your family, you have your job, but you have your duty. And, and, and this is something that I can tell you how amazing with all my friends. There is like, I think over 3,000, 300,000 reserves people now in the in the war. There is a lot of them that are 40 and, and, and more. And, and we are speaking and we are speaking together and everyone put their job aside, put their family aside. On the last 90 days, I didn't manage to have a full weekend with my family. It's a dream right now to be like more than 10 hours after I will sleep and rest a bit with the kids and everything. It, it's impossible because you are thinking of the of the next day, what you are going to do, your shipment, whatever. And everyone is calling you because the experience that we are bringing to this war, it, it, it's amazing. And all the the people who are now serving need this experience, and they are speaking with us. So we are. It, it's it, it's amazing from one side to understand that you have the opportunity to do something huge, but it's also very very difficult. But uh, this is the life in Israel, and I think that we are used to it, and we have to do it, and therefore we are here. And what 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 an what an amazing story! And, and I'm thinking, Gil, that 
it's like this cycle that we sometimes feel in this country of, uh, you know, Eldar said it so, uh, it, October 9th, you come back, you put on your uniform, you go fight, and that's 50 years to the day. And also the surprise, right, the, the shock of Yom Kippur War, the shock of October 7th attacks, it, it all together is just like, there's, it says something about, about what we face as a country. Absolutely. First of all, as, as as I'm hearing this moving story, I'm thinking of that popular song from the 1990s, which uh, our friend Danny Gordis just uh, spread around on, on, on his substack, if I'm allowed to mention somebody else's substack. Uh, the, the, we are the children of October 73. And um, three teachers uh, updated the song and, um, and, and, and changed the words to basically say how much we honor you, our students, you are the heroes of October 2023. And so there's a certain feeling of, 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 of the circle continuing. I also, as, as I'm listening to Eldar, I'm just thinking, how dare anybody sit there in the comfort of their home, not here, and lecture us about morality in wartime? How dare anybody tell us that we don't appreciate the power of loss? 50 years later, we're still mourning his father. And 50 years from now, we'll still be mourning his father. And the notion that we're these primitive beasts who somehow don't feel that we're these um, that we're we're not as sophisticated and as enlightened as some of our other fellow Jews who have the luxury of of, of judging us by remote control uh, is very very painful and very very hurtful, and uh, and and I'm hoping that as part of one of the many resets we need to have in this war is we'll have a new conversation both among our Jewish brothers and sisters all over the world and among our fellow liberal Democrats all over the world. It's so easy to judge one another. It's so easy to finger point. Um, but really, you know, we know the true morality comes from walking in the other's shoes and understanding the challenges of October 7th, the challenges of being surrounded. Uh, uh, Shlomo Brody mentioned this briefly, but we should emphasize a seven-front war uh, that um, in, includes the, 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 the territories, the West Bank, whatever you want to call it, that includes Hezbollah. By what right does Hezbollah just start attacking us? I'm, by the way, I'm joining my university colleagues. I'm yelling ceasefire too. I'm yelling ceasefire to Hezbollah. I'm yelling ceasefire to the Houthis. I'm yelling ceasefire to the Iranians. So I think we just need to have a new reset where we, first of all, talk about Israel in real terms, in respectful, respectful terms. And I, I've always said, I don't want special treatment as, as for Israel or as a Jew. I just want equal treatment. And that's not what's happening, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's all very interesting. And, I, and, and what I think about is how all those people, like you said, Gil, who, who uh, attack us and criticize us today and say that we're not being moral, or we're, we're, we're not being ethical in the way that we're fighting, but thinking back 50 years ago, how then we were also fighting for existence. And today, 50 years later, we still have to fight for existence. Is It says something more about the other side than about us. We're just trying to live our lives. They just want to keep on attacking us. And thankfully, we do have people like Eldar who are willing to fly back within 48 hours from their vacation somewhere in Africa and uh, and put back on that uniform to to fight alongside those eighteen year olds and everyone else uh, and 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 to keep this country safe. So on that note, I want to thank uh, Eldar. I want to thank Gil. I want to thank Rabbi Brody, and I want to thank all our viewers and listeners for being with us. I want to wish everyone a Shabbat Shalom. I think we will probably not meet before the new year. Where we we our next episode is on Monday, so I want to wish everyone also a happy new year. Let's hope that the coming new year will be one that will be a bit quieter than, uh, than 2023 from that perspective. So thank you very much and Shabbat Shalom.